Every once in a while, you read something, or you see something, or you hear something that makes things click into place in your mind. And once that happens, for you, the world is a little different. Forever. Today's episode will probably be one of those things. So I don't know if you've ever purchased the goods or the services provided by an upstart disruptor company before or not. If you have, it can take many forms. You may subscribe to a shave club for razors. The new razor from Harry's. Harry's, not the same. You may have purchased one of those heavily discounted mattresses that come in a really cool box. You might even have done that after hearing an ad on a podcast. We're hoping to debunk the old school notion that you need a firm mattress to support your back. You may have cut out the middlemen and purchased glasses from one of those sleek online stores that just need your prescription and your money and the lenses are on their way. Oh, hi. We're Warby Parker. You might have subscribed to a hipster clothing brand's online monthly wardrobe subscription. I, myself, have been guilty of that one. You may have gotten your luggage or your coffee or your health insurance or your socks or your groceries from a startup that does just that thing. And that's how you know that they really care and are really good and just want to make a difference in your shopping experience. If you have done any of those things, then congratulations. You have purchased a bland. There are a million blands. There are more every minute. They all sell themselves as unique. Harry's, not the same. And they are all exactly the same. And they are everywhere. So today we're going to learn about them just in time for your last minute holiday shopping. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. This is The Big Story, which is mostly not a bland, but it could be. Ben Schott is a visual columnist for Bloomberg Opinion. He created the Schott's original miscellany and the Schott's almanac series. He writes for newspapers and magazines around the world. Hi, Ben. Hello. I want to ask you first, um, where did you come up with uh, the concept, the idea that we're talking about today? Because it really reads to me like you just kind of had a flash of insight and and something (laughs) occurred to you. Uh, Yes, well, it's sort of came like that. What it really was, was a consequence of the quarantine and lockdown in Manhattan. One of the strange things about Manhattan basically emptying, I mean, you could literally walk down Fifth Avenue in the middle of the day and wouldn't be a single car. So it was empty in sort of March and April as, you know, the numbers became more ominous. And what you could see is the wood for the trees or the trees for the wood. So you could see the reliance on delivery workers and on uh, package deliveries and on homelessness because everything stood out because there was no crowd. And the other thing you saw pretty much everywhere you went was people delivering these boxes, um, FedEx and Amazon and UPS, box after box after box. And they all had these beautiful logos on them that all had a similar look and feel. And this tied with something that I've been feeling about branding um, in sort of, you know, third uh, phase Western capitalism. And that was this notion of the rise of the bland. We'll start then maybe by introducing us to it through the toothbrushes uh, that you wrote about, because that that was incredible, and I hadn't uh, even considered it until I saw them all in the same place like that. What are the brands? Uh, tell me the type, and maybe even just list their names, because it's insane. So people may have heard of Quip. So Quip was this um, subscription toothbrush, um, silver, thin, stylish, 
sort of like the 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 Apple Mac of toothbrushes. Um, and Quip has been around for a bit. Then about a month ago or two months ago now, Colgate introduced a toothbrush called Hum. Now, what's interesting about Hum is Hum has its own separate little website, and it looks remarkably like Quip. And once you start looking, Quip looks remarkably like Gobi and Burst and Boker and Brush and Gleam and Shine. And there are dozens of these lookalike subscription toothbrush companies, which have these very sort of edgy, funky, cool, pastel, modern, sort of unthreatening scents. But it's a subscription toothbrush. And if you told my grandfather that people would be spending money on a subscription to a toothbrush, I mean, he'd slap me. It would just be outrageous to him. But this has now become, you know, the new face of capitalism and consumer capitalism. Why do people spend money like this on subscription toothbrushes? Well, I mean, listen, that's not to say they're not good toothbrushes, and maybe they're splendid, and maybe actually a subscription means, you know, that you change your your toothbrush head more often, it's better for your teeth. And, you know, I'm not saying that these products are bad, I'm just saying that they've created a new sense. And what's interesting about these products, and I've dubbed them blands for reasons I'm sure we'll come onto, is that they try in a sort of fly under the radar of rational thought. They're cool and they're convincing and they're chummy and they sort of want to be your friend and they're not really like horrible old school brands. They're sort of, you know, your pals. And that's what's actually interesting about Hum by Colgate is that it has all the look and the feel of one of these like cheerful new breed blands, but it's got the big Colgate logo underneath it. So there's this tension between one of the cool new like upstart brands and one of the big old FMCG sort of, you know, monolithic brands. How do you define something as a bland? Do you have like a working definition in your head? Well, I return to the amazing judicial uh, opinion on obscenity and pornography. And the judge said, you know it when you see it. Um, And blands have a similar sort of sense. What they really are, and again, you know them when you see them, they are brands that claim simultaneously to be unique in, in product and groundbreaking in design and purpose and singular in delivery, while slavishly obeying an identical formula of business model, look and feel, and tone of voice. And it's the business model, the look and feel, and the tone of voice that once you identify them and you group them together, you realize that they're all the same. But individually, they all seem to be unique. And that's the trick the blands pull. How do they do that? Well, they do it through look and feel and tone of voice. So they tend to be neutral and clean and pastel. They tend to make claims to be underdogs. They always have an origin story narrative. They're humble. They do one thing well. They have these values, these important values of consumer and community and environment. Um, And they're aspirational. They're not cheap. So there's a huge blueprint. And the article I wrote for Bloomberg Opinion, I mean, it's about two and a half thousand words. And it goes through in tremendous detail how these brands operate in terms of aesthetics, but also in terms of business. Well, this is what I'm also really curious about is, you know, why do so many of them exist? And you know, in so many spaces, because again, the reason I started you off with toothbrushes is because it's just such an innocuous everyday thing that you would never imagine uh, there are 12 different companies vying for market share in. But but that exists on almost every product now. Uh, There must be a method behind this. Well, I mean, the important thing to say is that they are direct to consumer. So they are what in the industry is known as DTC brands. And the brands that people may have heard of, like the old school, the originators, some of the earliest brands 
were uh, Casper, uh, the mattress company, Warby Parker, the eyeglass company, Away, the luggage company, Harry's, the subscription shaving firm, Oscar, um, the the, the um, New York health insurance company, and Quip. And when you line them up, they all sort of have this sensibility. And because certain brands did very well, Sweet Green, the, uh, the salad company, and Warby Parker especially, the eyeglasses company, they came in and they disrupted um, a very old established um, business model. And then what happens is people in the same industry go, hang on, we can do that too. We can then knock off Warby Parker and there are dozens of Warby Parker wannabes. So there are people who say, oh, the eyeglass industry is ripe for disruption and why should this be the only disruptor? And then there are people who say, ah, we want to be the Warby Parker of, I don't know, car hire or the Warby Parker of window cleaning or the Warby Parker of, you know, coffee pods. So suddenly Warby Parker becomes, so my point is it works horizontally and vertically. Horizontally, people try and copy within that same grouping and vertically people borrow the success and say, well, how can we spin this off in other fields? What is there pitch to consumers because uh, it's almost uniform. Yeah, it is uniform. And when you line them up, you realize. So there 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 are lots of elements to it. I think the first of all is that they're underdogs. So often they're funded by almost incomprehensible amounts of venture capital or angel investment. But to say Oscar, for example, you know, their, their strap line is, we didn't create Oscar because we liked health insurance. Quite the opposite. There's the notion that they're on your side. It's the man who's been, you know, having it good for too long. And they are absolutely out to, like, disrupt the man and be good to the consumer. Now, of course, often, as I say, these are hugely, you know, wealthily funded companies. And they then eventually become the man. But this sense of underdog... And that's linked to the origin story. The origin story is remarkable. They all have the same sense. It's just this, you know, this bizarre notion. So, you know, candid. Uh, Once upon a time, five of us started talking about our teeth. Or keeps. Stephen Dimitri met the first week of college back when they both had very full heads of hair. It's this notion that they're just regular Joes who are like, you know what, we need a better sneaker and we're going to set out and invent it. And it's like, really? There are literally thousands of sneaker brands. And are you really doing anything that, you know, that innovative? You know, it's funny. We touched on it uh, at the very beginning uh, when you talked about the look and the feel of the toothbrushes. And It kind of brushed up against it uh, a minute ago when you talked about kind of the origin story. And all I can think of when I hear this is like, that sounds like Apple. Like that sounds like, uh, you know, the very beginnings of their brand. Is that where this all comes from? Well, I mean, listen, you can't have a conversation about any kind of modern branding without Apple. And almost all of these brands aspire, I think, sort of publicly or privately to be the Apple of their space. And the reason why is that Apple is incredibly clean and simple and distinctive and, you know, it has some of the greatest design and hence it's, you know, almost incomprehensible market value. The difference between these brands and and Apple is that Apple has been doing this for 44 years, right? So Apple has been fighting and it's been stumbling and it's been working incredibly hard and it's constantly wrong-footed its users. So I remember when I had a 
you know, uh, an Apple laptop and they're like, we're going to get rid of the CD drive. And I'm like, that is impossible. This is insane. How could you, you know, how are we going to download software without a CD player linked into my, you know, this incredibly heavy laptop? And they constantly do that. They take away the headphone jacks from their iPhones. Everyone's in uproar. And then everyone goes and buys Bluetooth headphones. So Apple is this remarkable example of a brand that actually takes incredibly brave decisions, gets things wrong, gets things right, moves forward. And it's arrived at this point after, you know, four decades. Now, it started off being like the great giant killer up against IBM. But now it's, you know, up there, you know, way more successful in some ways than IBM. And it's now just like a crisp silhouette shining from a screen. And everything you know about Apple is summed up in that one silhouette. But it took a long time to get there. Now, what the brands do, like the Away suitcases or Monos, the Apple of suitcases, is they try and start where Apple ends. They think, right, we are just going to start exactly, we're going to learn everything that Apple did, and that's going to be our baseline. But they don't invent necessarily, and they don't innovate. They just copy the playbook. And copying someone else's playbook is rarely a truly successful business design strategy, in my opinion. How do brands actually make money? Do they make money? It seems like there's too many of them fighting for the same space for for any of them, or at least very few of them, to be uh, reasonably successful. Well, some do make money and some spin off. Um, and I mean, this is this is the other thing is that brands are in it to exit. So a lot of these brands, not all of them, are not there to set up multi-generational companies. They're not there to become these sort of huge, you know, successful long-term companies. What they're trying to do is accelerate customer acquisition to a launch velocity before spinning off an IPO or seeking acquisition from a competing company. So, um, you know, Uber and Postmates or Lululemon who bought Mirror or PetSmart and Chewy. So often it's about blitzscaling to acquire as many customers as possible, to look as big as you can, and then essentially selling, either through an IPO, so you float it on the stock exchange, or you essentially sell it to one of your original competitors. And I, there's a sense to which these, some of these brands are almost engaged in a form of corporate blackmail. So they come along to, let's not name names, but they come along to, um, say, Widget X, like Widget X is a big consumer market and there's a couple of very big brands and they disrupt that. They disrupt X. Market X gets disrupted. And this super cool brand comes along and they do all the work. They spend a fortune to acquire customers. And then the companies that they were competing against, the old school lumbering big old fashion brands think, oh my God, well, we have three options. Either we just get absolutely crushed by this competition. Or we try and spin off our own super cool brand, which is what Colgate tried to do with Hum. Or we just buy the upstart and we bring it in and we just own it. We own our our competition. And that happens not infrequently. Of course, the consumer who bought this super cool upstart brand is like, hang on a sec, I liked you because you were like cool and not the man. And now the man has bought you. So where do I stand? But by this stage, the founders have escaped and they've made their you know, $200 million and everyone's happy. So how do Blands do when they're uh, acquired by mega corporations? Like how does Hum do for Colgate? Do people buy it? Do they know it's Colgate and, and that's why it, it doesn't succeed? Well, the answer is I don't know. I mean, Hum is relatively new. Okay. I mean, I laughed out loud. If you go to the Hum little mini site, it 
as I say, it looks like no other Colgate toothbrush. All the other Colgate toothbrushes on their website look like this, and Hum looks completely different. It's got this sort of uh, tomato red, it's got this super cool sans serif, slightly childish, it's all lowercase. It's very friendly, it's very sort of gender fluid. It's, it's very much of this particular design and aesthetic moment. But what's hilarious is underneath the Hum is the Colgate logo. Now, I have no idea this is true, but I'd be willing to bet 10 bucks that there was a meeting where the design people said, we should just call it Hum. And then there's the branding old school people who said, well, we've got to put the Colgate logo without realizing that sort of destroys the entire point because it sort of negates the entire sense of an upstart because it's making claims to this old fashioned brand. Now, the answer is how do, how do, how do brands do? Well, some do well and some don't. Um, some are hugely successful and have spun off successfully and some will fall by the wayside. I think it's been a weird year because the IPO market, you know, obviously with COVID has been strange. I think some will make a lot of money and the rest will make no money. And a vast amount of venture capital will be burnt, um, hmm. you know, in the interim. Is there such a thing as a unique bland or is that an oxymoron? I mean, one of the ones you had in your piece uh, is Frank and Oak. And you should know uh, you're talking to us from Canada. Frank and Oak is a proudly Canadian company and is often uh, trumpeted as a Canadian uh, owned and operated success story up here. Are blands unique? I think the answer is by definition, no, um, because what they are trying to do is buy into this sort of common aesthetic. Now, within that, they can do good work and bad work, and they can be better than others or worse than others. I think the first, I think, you know, the 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 the, the initial revolutionaries probably were onto something. I think everyone has followed in their footsteps isn't. But that's not to say that they're bad. And I, I suppose it's important to emphasize, I'm not saying that Bland's, I mean, the problem is that Bland's has a pejorative sense to it. Mm-hmm. And it is sort of easy and fun to slightly mock them when you put all of their origin stories together and you realize that they're all identical. In a sense, you could move around all the different words between these brands and they'd all make sense because they don't really claim to originality because true originality is actually quite shocking. But some of them are absolutely superb. I sit here and I am wearing Warby Parker glasses and I love them. I'm not saying that these are Hmm. bad products. I'm just saying it's absolutely fascinating how common they are in look and feel and tone of voice and business uh, model when what they are saying is we are unique and we are special and there's no one quite like us when there are literally dozens of people like them. Can you take an existing product or brand and make it into a bland in order to make it cooler? Could we make this podcast into a bland? Well, <laughs> I mean, it's funny and I don't want to get your podcast into trouble, but there's a huge overlap between the people who advertise on podcasts, the brands who advertise on podcasts and blands. There's a sort of huge overlap. And again, there's nothing wrong with this. It's just kind of amusing. Um, and podcasts have this sort of sense of they're kind of friendly. They're in your ears. They have this plinky plunky music. They have this sort of upspeak. It's all like, hey, welcome. It's a nice warm bubble bath. Everyone's welcome. <laughs> I'm and feeling Blanc personally this- attacked here. That's okay. But listen, it's hugely successful. And that's, that's the aesthetic of this communications medium in the way that Twitter has its own aesthetic or Instagram has an aesthetic. In fact, you could write an entire article, and I may well do, about the overlap between Instagram aesthetic and blanding. And again, there are so many blands that sort of seem to only exist on Instagram. You know, like the, like the plaid lumberjack shirt, of which you could find thousands of examples on Instagram. Yes. Or, you know, the idea that Instagram is useful for selling axes. I mean, really? Do people really need beautiful, elaborate, stylish axes? Turns out they do. Um, so, yeah, there is a, 
an, an overlap between all of these things. And I suppose for me, the question is, how long does this movement last? Have we reached peak bland? And one of the things that totally stunned me was the reaction to this piece. This has probably had more reaction than almost anything I've ever written. Um, and I think almost like a stand-up comedian, what I did was I just put my finger on something that people have sort of been feeling for many months, if not years. And once you put a name to it, they go, oh, you know, oh my God, that is exactly, oh my God, I think these, they're all the same, these brands. And people sort of feel vaguely conned, I think. But I should say, two CEOs of companies mentioned in this piece, who I'm not going to name, wrote to me to say, you know what? Hands up, you got us. I don't know why. One of the guys said, I don't know why I'm writing to you, but you absolutely nailed it. And I feel, as you say, I feel a little seen, but you know, it's working. So I'm going to stick with it. You just mentioned, have we reached uh, peak bland? How would we know when that happens? When new attempts at this uh, start to just be ignored? When, you know, they start to lose priority in your Instagram feed, uh, which, you know, is how I encounter them. Um, How will we know when the business model is changing? Well, I think like almost everything, one sees it first in the rearview mirror. You know, it's a bit like when you have a headache, you never notice the moment the headache's gone. You go, oh, I haven't had a headache for a bit. And I think, you know, I think that's the case with lots of um, sort of cultural movements. You rarely see the moment. I mean, occasionally, you know, when um, when uh, Bob Dylan stood up in Free Trade Hall and goes electric and a man shouts Judas, well, all right, that's exactly a moment where the culture changed. But you don't really see those moments. Um, I do think blands have tipped and I do think... Um, this piece was lucky enough, I think, to call it on the crest of the wave. Um, And I think we are at a moment. And actually, I am writing a piece um, which I will happily come back and talk about, should you be interested, on what I think is next. And it's a sort of son of bland. And it's using a lot of the same techniques in a slightly disruptive and alienating way. So I think there are signs of the backlash, or rather the next step, But again, you tend to see it in the rearview mirror. Ben, thank you so much for coming on and talking to us about this. It's uh, one of the most fascinating things I've read this year. Well, you're a darling. Thank you. Ben Schott, visual columnist for Bloomberg Opinion. That was The Big Story. For more from us, head to thebigstorypodcast.ca or find us at frequencypodcastnetwork.com. You can, of course, find us in any podcast player you prefer, Apple, Google, Stitcher, Spotify, doesn't matter. You can also write to us, The Big Story Podcast, that's all one word, all lowercase, at rci.rogers.com. And as always, we are on Twitter at The Big Story FPN. Claire Broussard, Stephanie Phillips, and Ryan Clark produced The Big Story. Annalisa Nielsen is our digital editor. Joseph Fish was an associate producer all this week, and we were so grateful to have him. And we're so grateful that you listened. Thanks for doing that. I'm Jordan Heath Rawlings. Stay safe this weekend. We'll talk tomorrow.